here because we honor God. That's actually going to come up in this message today. Before I get into it, though, I want to remind you, uh, I didn't hear it in the announcements. It could be just because I missed it. But there is a family meal today right after church. Hope you uh, brought something to share. I hope you plan on staying. If you forgot about it, hey, go run up to the store, grab, uh, grab something from the deli, go get pizza from Casey's. If you forgot about it and you're broke, hey, uh, Isaiah chapter 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Uh, just come join us anyway. There'll be food back there, okay? We, we hope you uh, want to stick around and fellowship, enjoy some good food. Uh, today, uh, I am aware that my messages, um, while I enjoy them anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I understand they don't lend themselves to note-taking. I'm not a one, two, three-point type preacher. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's impossible to jot some things down. I say that just because today is a ten-point message. There'll ten things, you can make a list. There'll be ten things we're talking about. I'm going to open with something else. And then you can break out your uh, notebooks and your pencils and mark them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And take something home with you. And this is what I learned in church today, all right? But uh, I want to encourage you, just by way of a weekly reminder, if you're not in the habit of bringing a Bible to church, Get in that habit, it's a, whether it's an electronic Bible or a paper one. I know we put the scriptures up here, uh, but it really is a, a useful, um, not just habit, it's a useful ability to, to be able to open that Bible when we say, open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 55, you know about where it is, crack that thing open, you know, they used to, you know, sword drills, Bible drills, this sort of thing, so we'd know where this thing was, and in, and in this uh, day and age of the, of the electronic Bibles, it's a little bit easier just to flip open that table of contents, punch in the buttons, and it opens right to that passage, uh, but, and that's fine, but still, it's, good, it's a good thing to see that, get, in, get used to seeing that in your Bible rather than just up on the screen, okay? You never know what we, uh, you know, we could, if you're trusting completely in what we're throwing up there, sooner or later we can throw anything we want up there, right? Uh, and I'm only half joking, that is exactly how many cults start. I can't say it with, uh, with any authority because I wasn't there, but I've heard it and read it from several different sources that Jim Jones, I don't know, how many of our younger people remember Jim Jones? And uh, what was the name of his deal? Temple, People's Temple, something or other temple. Uh, but he used to be a, you know, kind of a fiery scriptural preacher. And a very charismatic guy. I mean, he drew a crowd just by virtue of his, uh, uh, his personality, his natural charisma. And it got to the point long before everybody moved out, went to Guyana, long before anybody drank the Kool-Aid. You know, this was, this is what the, when you hear the phrase drink the Kool-Aid, that's where that came from. 900 some people on purpose drank grape Kool-Aid laced with cyanide uh, because Jim Jones told them to and he was the voice of God. But before it got to that point, he was preaching the Bible. And then he elevated himself up to the point where he was hearing directly from God until it got to the point he could walk down the aisle of a packed church tearing pages out of the Bible and stepping on them as he walked down the aisle. And people didn't blink. Now, it gets to that point, people have lost respect for the Word of God. The Word of God is above all of that. So get used to appreciating the authority with which the Word of God speaks to us and uh, get used to seeing it on your own, okay? Anyway, I heard a couple things, I think you heard them too, uh, that I want to point out that serve as a great 
kind of confirms that God is always in control. God is orchestrating our times together. I heard uh, Steve say something at the end of praise and worship after the song was over and we were worshiping in the spirit uh, where he said, uh, through the spirit of God, everything is yours, church, if you only believe. Everything is yours, church, if you only believe. And then when Doug came up and brought the word, he said, it's time to take this fight into the arena of faith and out of the arena of fear. And those things are connected, and they're connected with the prelude to the list here. There is a stamp on us marked that says paid in full. Everything is ours if we believe it. You know, the devil can read that stamp. And that's why his job, you know, what's he, what's he all about? Steal, kill, and destroy. But in practical terms, what he's trying to do, what his efforts are aimed at, is to keep us from availing ourselves of everything that God has made available to us. To keep us in the dark, to keep us feeling and operating as if we are having to struggle for every good thing in our life when God has paid for them and made them ours. What if... And there's a million different examples, but just uh, since I'm getting hungry, we were running late today, I didn't eat breakfast, and I'm already thinking about the food after the service. What if you could go into the best restaurant, or your favorite restaurant, or your dream restaurant, maybe a restaurant you always wanted to go to but could never afford, and somebody said, go in and order freely from the menu, anything and everything you want. It is all yours, and it's all paid for. What are you going to do? Well, I'll just have some breadsticks, maybe a bowl of soup. No, you're going to order what you want, as long as you really believe that it's paid for, right? I was, uh, when we were flying back from Africa a couple of years ago, I paid an extra 20 or $30 just so I could get the extra four or five inches up against the bulkhead that separates coach from first class, you know, so I could have just, just a little bit more room so, so my knees weren't jammed into the seat in front of me. But from that vantage point, I had a pretty good look at first class. Every time those, uh, the flight attendants would traverse from one section to the other and they'd, fl- they'd flip that curtain open and I could see, you know, and I'm drooling. Uh, I mean, these guys, they're sitting in easy chairs, you know, with a, a space built into the chair in front of them for them with, to prop up their feet on a pillow. Oh my goodness, the room they had, just the space. I was just aching for that. And then they served, uh, because it was a, a, you know, it was a transatlantic flight, pretty lengthy flight they were serving some pretty decent snacks and they brought out this little pizza Mm. it was a little microwave deal I'm sure but it was it was a little Chicago style pizza and it was good but you know I'd say it was like that it was like this it was small but I could see those flight attendants would continually go to those first class um, customers and say would you like some more can I get you more of anything I'm thinking man and you know what? Now, I know some of them got those seats, probably most of I don't know. I don't, know how, I don't fly very often, so I don't know how it works. A lot of them, they get upgrades for miles flown and everything like that, frequent flyer miles, whatever. But you know what? If you paid for a first-class ticket, you paid something like five times the normal price of that flight. Now, if I'm paying that, if I'm sitting in first class because that, that seat is paid for, do you think I'm going to hesitate for one second 
to take everything they offer me that I want anyway? Can I get you more of anything? Well, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be greedy. It's paid for. You better believe that extra piece of pizza is built into the price of that ticket, okay? (laughs) Nobody's going to lose here. And it's the same thing with God. He's made all this available to us. And we're, we're afraid to order too freely from the menu. Like we're going to exhaust God's resources. I know we sort of talked about that not too long ago. But he's made all these things available for us. Now here's the thing. On, on one hand, we make a mistake by not ordering freely from that menu of all the glorious promises of God. And on the other end of that spectrum, we order very frequently and very freely, but for the wrong reasons. The whole idea of being a king's kid, which I endorse and I embrace, I'm one, you're one, you're more than one. But the idea that I'm a king's kid and therefore I should have the best of everything, period, is wrong. I'm a king's kid so that I should have the best of everything so that I can do the most with those things. I can accomplish more with the best I can operate more freely in the things that God has called me to do without the burden of sickness, without the burden of poverty, without, the, without having to worry where my victory is coming from. But knowing that God has provided health for me, has provided every form of provision and prosperity for me, and, and has promised me triumph and victory in every battle, that frees me to continue to do everything else God has called me to do. That's what the faith is for. When we talk about taking this battle into the realm of faith, it's taking this battle uh, with the attitude, with the conviction, not just an attitude, that God has already secured the victory and not holding back, okay? Charging forward and claiming the things that God has given us for the purpose of advancing his kingdom. So far, so good, right? When we talk about the things that this world is up against, yeah, here's another thing. Uh, I, it make, it's headline news, even though it seems to happen every other week now. But, you know, you, I open up my web browser, and one of the headlines is, Mega Millions hits, what, $400 million, $500 million, I don't know what it is, or Powerball, nearing record jackpot. And I don't know, maybe I'm carnal, but whenever I see something like that, I start to wonder, what would I do? And so you even go, uh, what would be the cash payout? All right, I walk away from it. After taxes and taking the lump sum, I got $200 million sitting on the table. What do I do with it? What do you do with it? Where does your mind immediately go? Who said that? Good for you. Very, very spiritual. Then what? Then, okay, no. <laughs> Same thing. I mean, if you, if you are biblically minded, the first thing you think of is, how much of this does God lay claim to immediately? Okay, you pay that tithe. But then what? You start thinking about bigger houses, better cars, longer vacations, quitting your job. Nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. Or do you start thinking about how much good that money would do for the kingdom of God? Because that's what it's all for. Okay? And we, and, and the, and, but it's not just money. All of the resources that God made available to us, he made available to us so that we can obey him more completely and accomplish this mission more effectively. Um, and we need to see this as compared to the scope and the diversity of the problems facing the world today. This world's a mess. 
I mean, the doom and gloomers are having a heyday. There is, some, there is disaster around the, right around every corner, according to some people. Uh, and the disaster is very real for some people. And you hear the phrases, unimaginable evil, unspeakable terror, unprecedented disasters. And we think, what does the enemy have up his sleeve next? And I want to assure you of a couple of things. That number one, we are not ignorant of our enemy's devices. He is not, his resources are not infinite. You, you, you understand? Please tell me you understand that Satan is not the mirror image of God. He's not just like God, only bad. He's a created being with limited power. In fact, his power, in the simplest sense, is limited to his ability to deceive those who he can deceive. Now, accomplishes a lot through deception, doesn't he? And we give the devil a lot more credit than he deserves for our sin. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. That was your flesh. That wasn't a demon. Okay? 99 times out of 100. Probably more than that. I mean, not more times out of 100. I mean, probably 90, 999 times out of 1,000. Or maybe even, never mind. <laughs> so he's not, there's nothing, he doesn't have any new tricks up his sleeve. He's, he's throwing everything he has. There's no reason for him to hold back. He's not holding evil in reserve. The other thing you need to know is that as unimaginable and unspeakable as the evil is that we see around us, God is much more imaginative in terms of his solution to the world's problems. There's nothing that's happened that he hasn't foreseen. There is nothing that can befall us that God has not already prepared a way of escape, a way of victory over these things. Nothing takes him by surprise. You know, I hear about people <laughs> wanting to uh, leave our great state of Illinois because it is unfriendly to business. It's, uh, it's in terrible in terms of, you know, the state. Good grief, the debt the state is in. Uh, pensions are disappearing. Uh, all this bad stuff. It's a bad environment for business. Taxes is what it boils down to. And, and I hate that too. I hate that this state is in the mess it's in and, the, and yet the things they continue to take on and decide to fund with my money and your money. But you know what? God can prosper me right in the middle of this. And if he can't, if God can't prosper me in the middle of a state with bad tax laws, what am I supposed to tell the person who's living in the desert? What am I supposed to tell the, pe the poor people that we minister to in Africa? And I cannot stand it when people start, when they want to trash talk people like us because we believe in prosperity. I don't know if you've heard this. I'll bet you have, though when they'll say something like, well, you couldn't preach that over in the jungles. You can't preach that in 50% in of the world today. Yes, you can, you, and you better. They need to hear it. It absolutely works. It'll work at, these principles work everywhere, all right? So God makes all these, available, sorry, all these resources available to us, puts all this, the things we talked about the last couple weeks ago, the, the, the uh, desire to do the things he wants us to do, gives us the anointing, the power to do these things, makes the resources available to do these things, and we begin to, re to realize that God desires to 
use us to work a deliverance in other people. Not just, yeah, obviously that deliverance comes from preaching the gospel, but prospering us so we can be a source of prosperity to others, healing us so that we can minister healing to others. And where we kind of come back to, where we may be left off um, with our, you know, the can-do and the want-to little mini-series there, is we come to the point where, and we've all been there, we're fired up, we're ready, we're committed to do what? What's my next step? And we talked about that in part three, but I want to give you ten specifics. If God doesn't call you to the mission field, if he doesn't call you to occupational ministry, and you don't have a clear idea of where you fit in, in the local body, here are 10 things that every believer needs to be doing on a regular basis. Okay? These are 10 lifestyle things. This is not an exhaustive list. There are not only 10, but 10 is a nice round number. And this is not, this list is also not hierarchical. I don't think that, we're not going to be counting down, oh, ten, if 10 was that, I wonder what number one is. I'll, number one and two, I would sort of give them primacy of place, but the rest of them, they're just, they're all on the list, okay? Ten things that we need to be doing, and, and again, we're remembering that God is aware of the world's problems, God has solution to the world's problems, and we are an intricate, a, 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 an absolutely vital part of God's working that solution in the lives of others. And these 10 things are the things that will qualify us to be used to bring that solution to the world. Make sense? So, without further ado, number 10. I'm sorry. I guess we can just, we can count them, we'll just count them up since there's not a 10, 9, 8. One, first, go to church. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, so much the more as you see the day approaching. The, let me say also that most of these, probably every single thing on this list, there is a sermon or series that could be preached on every one of these, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but I'm not just going to throw the list at you either. And I want to spend a couple minutes on this one because as evangelicals, which we are, I mean, that's not the only descriptive we would use. We're charismatic, we're word of faith, uh, but we're also, in the broader sense, evangelicals, meaning, among other things, that what we believe about Christianity is that it starts with a personal commitment to Christ. We would say, again, as evangelicals, that we are not Christians because we go to church. We are not Christians because we, uh, we subscribe to a particular denomination's teachings. We're not Christians because of any ceremony like confirmation or even baptism. No, Why, how, how do we define Christianity? A personal relationship, a conversion experience where we acknowledge God's claim to lordship over our lives. We acknowledge that, he, that we enter into that lordship relationship with him through the cross of Jesus Christ by a personal belief and confession in the finished work of God through Jesus on the cross. Okay? But the problem is 
that too many people take that much, much further than God ever intends that truth to go and say that the only, that I'm a Christian, it's all about me and God. You'll hear it, maybe some of you said it. I believe in Jesus, I just don't believe in the church. I'm not into the institutionalized religion, man. It's about me and God. That's what Christianity is. It's my relationship with God. No, that's, you, that's what your conversion is. That's how you became a Christian. Christianity is not just you and God. Jesus never teaches about a relationship like that. Jesus teaches about our relationship with God almost exclusively as a body, as a community in relationship to God. Everything that we are meant to do, we are meant to do in community with one another, with other believers. Okay, And if we're not doing that, we are doing it wrong. It's not just a better way. It is the only scriptural way. If, you'll go, if you go back and read, and if you have read, you'll, I know what I'm about to say will sound very familiar to you. When the, uh, and bear with me if you haven't read this and you're not familiar with it because we're going to be getting into this to, uh, together as a church soon. But in the days of the kingdom... When you know, Saul was the first king of Israel, and then David, the next king of Israel, and then Solomon, David's son, the next king of Israel. And these, were the, this, these were the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. When David had subdued all the enemies, Solomon had collected all this wealth and built the palace and built the temple, and things were beautiful. And then Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam is about to become king, and there is a tax revolt, of all things, led by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and they, there's a split and so ten tribes go off on their own and start the northern kingdom of Israel while uh, Benjamin is absorbed by Judah to become the southern kingdom of Judah. And now you've got two countries, two nations, and they were often fighting one another. Every now and then they would ally themselves against other enemies. Uh, and then there's a series of kings after Jeroboam. It wasn't a linear, you know, it wasn't just a, a, uh, a series of sons because there were different uh, takeovers and coups and murders and everything else. Uh, while the bloodline of David continued to reign in the south, the northern kingdom was a mess, and they had 20-some kings, and every single one of them was bad. Some were worse than others, and you've heard of some of them, like Ahab. He was terrible. Uh, and there were some good kings in the south, but most of them were bad. But here is the thing. Here is the phrase you will see again and again and again. It will talk about the next king of Israel. And then so-and-so became king. He was this old when he began to reign, and he reigned this many years. And he did not walk in the ways of God, but followed in the ways of, his father, of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. You'll see, I don't know how many times that phrase is in there. But time and time and time again. He did not honor God, but followed in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. What a legacy Jeroboam has. Son of Nebat who caused Israel to sin. And it's talking about Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin. The son of Nebat is just the identifier of who, which Jeroboam we are. What did he do to cause Israel to sin? Aside from the obvious rebelling and splitting off from the kingdom in the first place, the specific sin he was guilty of was building a separate place of worship the only authorized place for them to gather for their festivals. And they did not like everybody went to church. They, they, weren't, they weren't commanded to gather in Jerusalem on every Sabbath. 
but for the, the, the feasts and when the young men were to present themselves at the temple three times a year, that was only to be done at the temple in Jerusalem. That's where God put his, uh, his, his approval. And Jeroboam acknowledges that early in his reign. He's like, yay, I've led this successful revolt. I'm the king of the northern kingdom. We're going to do it on our own. But what's going to happen when the people have to go back to Jerusalem to worship? It's, it's written right in there. It's in black and white. If they have to go back to Jerusalem to worship, their hearts might be softened and they might want to return and reunite with Judah. So here's what I'll do. We'll build a high place over here and call this our place of worship. And he actually makes, of all things, molded calves. Sound familiar? Jeroboam? Aaron? Not you, Aaron. And says, this is your God. So that just to keep them from going back to Jerusalem. And this started the ball rolling, and people say, well, if Jeroboam can do it, I can do it. And that's the other thing you see. All through this, these passages are the high places, the high places. And they began to be scattered over Judah as well. And the good kings were distinguished because they would tear down these idols, and often it would say, he got rid of this idol, he got rid of this idol, and yet he didn't get rid of the high places. Or if he was an extraordinarily good king, he also got rid of the high places. What are the high places? Well, in many cases, it was a place where the children of Judah and Israel were worshiping false gods. But in some cases, they were simply worshiping Jehovah on their own. They just weren't doing it right. What was wrong with it? They weren't supposed to worship him on their own. You understand? You do worship him on your own. We're going to talk about praise and worship later on down the list. Not every point is going to take this long, I promise. (laughs) But you worship him with your lifestyle. But when it comes to the acts of worship, ceremonial worship, formal worship, that's to be done in a prescribed way. It, very, very much so in the Old Testament. I mean, there, was, there were laws governing exactly how they were to do that. But Jeroboam caused Israel to sin by simply saying, it's all about you. We don't have to do it any particular way. We'll worship him our way. Judah can worship him their way. And that caused everything to spiral out of control. So you know what? Go to church. It's the, right way, it's the right thing to do. It's the right way to worship God. Come together. I don't want, and I'm not legalistic about how we do church. You know, people, people want to say, well, in the New Testament, they didn't have church buildings. They met from house to house. You know what? In the, new, in the early church, it was illegal. They couldn't have gotten away with building a church building. And that, that's a whole nother sermon. I'll wait. We'll, we'll, we got time. If Jesus tarries, we'll get into that. Number two, walk in forgiveness. Walk in forgiveness. As you read and study the Bible, which incidentally also makes this list, surprise, surprise, you will notice, if you will notice anything at all, that forgiveness is absolutely central to the story of God's dealings with man. Why? Because our big problem is that we need forgiveness. We sinned against God, and there's absolutely nothing we can do to get back to God on our own So he had to forgive us. But God, being a just God, could not just say, hey, I love you, forget about it. No, (laughs) there was a debt that had to be paid, and God paid it at the cross. And the whole idea of you uh, forgiving somebody and uh, and me forgiving somebody is, and it's, it's hard. Oh, man, I walked through something with a friend of mine 
the last couple years, and the question he keeps asking me is, how do I forgive? He's asked it again and again. So many people, and people, good-hearted people, will throw things at him like, well, here's why you need to forgive. Because, and they'll throw scriptures at him. He's like, I don't, you don't understand. I know I need to. I'm not looking for an excuse not to. I just want to know how. And I don't have an easy answer for him. But I'll tell you the beginning of the answer for everybody to that question is simply this. You have to understand how much you have been forgiven. We can walk in forgiveness, and we never quite see it this way. But we, we, the, it would help us a lot. We could, we could be more forgiving, and we would, the praise would flow more easily out of us if we could see our sin from God's perspective. We think our sin isn't that bad, but it is so bad to God. And that's why the price he paid was so great. Walk in forgiveness, Mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, Mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's pretty heavy. There's a motivation right there to forgive. Do you want to be forgiven? Yes, you do. All right, I do too. Number three, as we've already referenced, praise the Lord. <laughs> praise the Lord. Sometimes we see that phrase in the Bible, and it's a, it's, it's a record of somebody expressing their praise to the Lord. Sometimes when we see it, though, it is a command. Praise ye the Lord. Always remember that he is worthy of our praise no matter what kind of day we are having. By all means, we should praise him and thank him for the good times. And this is where we miss it more often than not. More often, we are inclined to turn to God or turn back to God when things are bad. Again, when we're in crisis mode, when there is a felt immediate need, we cry out to God. But when things are good, we forget him. We forget to give him credit. Oftentimes we will pray for something. There'll be an answer that is almost immediate. And we're so giddy and happy and we forget to thank him. It's kind of like the, the uh, you've probably heard this a million times, but I still think it's hilarious about the guy who, he's, he's on his way to a very, very important meeting and he's running very, very late. And uh, everything, so much of his job, so much of his world is riding on him, arriving at this meeting in time and he's driving there, he's driving right around the, 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 the town square and he can't find a parking space. Oh, Lord, I need a parking space as close to this meeting as possible. I've got to be in there. I will do anything. If you will provide a parking space and get me to this meeting on time, I will stop this. I will stop that. I'll start. I will double my tithe. I'll go to church every Sunday. And no sooner is the prayer out of his mouth than a car pulls out of the perfect parking spot right in front of the building. He whips in there and says, never mind, God, I found one. Wow. <laughs> And, we, and we, see, we see God, or maybe we don't. We see great things happening in our lives, and we're like, yay, now I don't need God anymore. No, no, God just met that need. It's like Pharaoh yeah. suffering the plagues. Moses says, Pharaoh's like, pray that your God would deliver us from, from these, what, the frogs or the flies or whatever. And Moses says, when? When do you want this plague to end? And what's Pharaoh say? Tomorrow. Why? Because maybe, maybe this will go away on its own between now and tomorrow, and then I won't have to keep my word. Then I won't have to give God the glory. Tomorrow. 
When do you want to be healed of this horrible, horrible pain? Eh, tomorrow would be good. <laughs> now! Right? Oh, good night. So when it happens, whether it happens right now or tomorrow, when it happens, praise God for the good times. All right? But when things aren't so good, when we are in the middle of a battle, when things don't seem... Guess what? He's still God. And he still deserves praise because of who he is. All right? So do that as a matter of... If it takes, you, if it takes discipline, obviously, man, if we, if we get a picture of God, if we get, come to know him as he deserves to be known, the praise and the worship is going to flow out of us. All right? It doesn't always mean plugging in a CD and singing along with it. You can worship him behind the wheel of your car. You don't have to dedicate a half hour block of time to say you're praising and worshiping. Can you whisper a prayer of thanks to him as you're walking from one place to another? Again, it's a lifestyle of worship. Okay, praise the Lord. Uh, Philippians 4.4, 4, if you want a scripture reference for that one, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's a command right there. That's not just Paul saying, yay, isn't God great? He's saying rejoice in the Lord always. Not just the good times. Okay, number four, tithe and give. Tithe and give. Do not waste time with me or with yourself or with anybody else arguing about whether or not the tithe is Old Testament law. There is no question from the New Testament perspective that we are to give generously into the work of the kingdom. If the tithe is not a legal requirement, listen to this. If the tithe is not a legal requirement, it is only because God expects more, not less. And I know I run the risk of sounding self-serving as a pastor on staff at a church. So let me make something perfectly clear to you in case you're under any illusions. I don't get paid as a percentage of the offering. All right? I'm not urging you to tithe because my cut goes up when it's a big offering. <laughs> All right? Now, again, but this is one of those, the tithe and the offering, finances in general, money in general, is something that deserves not just its own sermon, but its own series and gets it from time to time, rightfully so. But I have to say a couple things about it. Uh, number one, to back up what I just said about God requiring more. You know, when, 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 the, uh, when Jesus would, would discuss matters of the law with people, I'm going to point out two very specific examples. When he said, for instance, you have heard, thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not murder. Yet I tell you that if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder in your heart. Anyone who calls his brother empty-headed or a fool. Now, what's the, what's the legal requirement? Don't kill him. Don't murder him. But Jesus is pointing out the reason that legal requirement is there is to keep you from doing what is in your heart to do. The real problem is in your heart. Keeping the law, not killing him, isn't going to solve the real problem. It'll just keep your brother alive. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. Now what's the legal requirement? Don't follow through with that desire, but what's the real problem? There's a heart problem. 
you have heard it, I would then infer, bring the tithe and the offering into the storehouse. Yet I tell you that it all belongs to God. What's the legal requirement? The tithe. What's the reality? It's all God's. We ought to be, if we want to be in a place where God can trust us with the kind of riches we dream about, we need to be in a place where we're the kind of people that when God says, empty that bank account now, send it to so-and-so, bring it to church, give it to so-and-so, that we are the kind of people that say, yes, sir. Most of us aren't. Most of us aren't. Most of us aren't listening really hard to hear that from God. We're not going around day by day saying, God, you want me to empty this account? Because I will, I will. You know, we hope we're the kind of people that if we do hear the voice of God, we'll do it, but we're not really aching for him to say that to us, right? We need to understand, though, that if he does that, he's the kind of God who will fill it back up, all right? He will, he will always, you can't outgive him, okay? But it all belongs to him. If, the, if you're trying to get out of giving to God by saying the tithe is Old Testament law, welcome to the New Testament and give more. All right? Because the, 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 the heart requirement is always greater than the legal requirement. And we have, we've got the Holy Spirit. We can go above and beyond the law. Because of the Holy Spirit, I can honestly walk into a room full of people and not even desire to kill any of them. <laughs> right? All right. Tithe and give offerings. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 6, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. I just want to throttle some people <laughs> who fight the message of abundance and say, what's your translation of that verse? Always, having all sufficiency in all things, except money. That's not what it says. All means all, right? Number five. How are we doing? We're doing great. Number five. Watch your mouth. And I mean that in the old-fashioned sense. Watch your mouth and other little things. You know... This is not a legalism issue. That's something else the world has become very, very lax about, as Facebook makes painfully aware. I've given up, except in very few cases. You know what? I talked to the leaders uh, last week about the idea of making deposits in people before you can make withdrawals from people. You know, there's, don't get on the Internet and start scolding people for cussing if you don't have a, a relationship with that person. And just knowing who they are, having them on your friends, friends list doesn't qualify. <laughs> All right. If you've got a dialogue and a relationship where you have invested something in somebody, by all means, get on there. Wade in. I do from time to time, rarely. But I'm not going to preach at somebody for putting a cuss word in their status when, when I don't have anything, again, if I haven't made a deposit in their life. But I'm ashamed sometimes for my brothers and my sisters who don't hesitate to write the first thing that comes into their mind. You can really, it's really embarrassing when somebody's mad and they decide to share it with the Facebook world in the most vulgar and offensive terms. 
But this isn't a legal, ship, uh, a legal issue. This is a lordship issue. Because the word condemns coarse speech. You know that? We're not just talking about, it doesn't just say don't take the Lord's in vain. It says put away coarse speech from your mouth. It also warns us, it also encourages us to hold fast our confession. Our tongues are powerful. So we've got to use them carefully. Got to use them wisely. James chapter 3, verse 2. For we, are, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. Able also to bridle the whole body. So watch your mouth. Not just in terms of avoiding coarse speech, but as a matter of training your tongue to glorify God, speak his word. You want your confession to mean something? Then get out of the habit of saying things you don't mean. All right. Number six, be sexually pure. Now I'm talking about, we're talking about lifestyle things that every Christian needs to do. Be sexually pure. This, it's also a source of grief to see how casually this issue is treated in the church. I mean among the church at large. Not, not living word, of course, we're better. But among the church at large, this is an issue that people treat very, very casually. And when I say remain sexually pure, uh, what I mean is there is only one circumstance in which God gives his approval to sexual activity. And that is between one man and one woman who are married to each other. Period. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Sin, uh, sorry. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this, I don't hear too many people arguing when this issue comes up. I don't hear too many people arguing that, well, that's just old-fashioned. God really doesn't care. The argument is usually, it's just too hard. Can't do it. But that's not true either. People just, people aren't interested in trying. And there's a, there's a whole message uh, well, good grief, there's, there's tons of stuff in the Word just about this. Things we used to try to hammer into the skulls of, of the kids in, in the youth group. is not, it's a ridiculous idea to think that you can get to the point spiritually where in the most tempting situation possible that you won't be tempted. That this is the goal. That I'm going to be so full of the Word of God that when I'm all alone, with that person, and it's dark and we are unsupervised, then we will not sin. You know what's going to happen? No matter how much Bible you read, you better believe it. No matter how much Bible you read, no matter how much you prayed in tongues before the date, you find yourself in that position, you will sin. Sooner or later, you will sin. It's, it's like, uh, uh, James Dobson did the math on it. He came up with the number of hours. After this many hours alone, sexual activity will occur. Now, I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to the rule. I'm saying, though, it's a rule. And you can count on it. So what's the solution then? Don't get in those positions. 
Paul doesn't say strengthen yourself so that when you are in those situations you will not sin. What's he say? Flee. <laughs> Run away. Run away. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a holiness issue. This is a matter that is so serious before God. It's so important. And again, it's treated in society today like, ah, come on, it's not that big a deal. But it is. It really is. It compromises our effectiveness. And, it, and it, it, we're talking, it encompasses everything. We're not just talking, you know, Christians love to focus on the issue of gay marriage. Well, God's opposed to that. He sure he is. He is just as opposed to premarital sex between a boyfriend and a girlfriend who are Christians, churchgoers who aren't married. He's just as opposed to adultery. Okay? Now, in a crowd this size, there's bound to be one or two people who have fallen in this area. And some of you are saying, well, Scott, I understand that the Bible says to be sexually pure, but I've already blown it. I've al I'm already in a relationship that, where illicit sexual activity has occurred. You ready for my heavy revelation on this? Thus saith the Lord, stop. Cut it out. Get before God and say, I was wrong, and I knew I was wrong when I did it. I'm not doing it anymore. By your power, by your strength, I'm going to walk in wisdom and stop it. That's called repentance. Amen. And you know what God says when you, say, when you do that? He says, all right. Let's drive on. Let's leave that in the past. Don't dig it up anymore. Yeah, you did it. Stop it. Let's go on. Let's don't talk about it anymore. Except for the fact of learning from it, all right? Number seven, share your faith. We've heard this, I know, last several weeks, right? Share your faith. As, I, as we started to say during, during the uh, first one, go to church, the only thing private about your relationship with God, the only thing personal, the only thing one-on-one -on -one in Christianity that's just about you and God and nobody else is your conversion. Everything else is shared. Uh, we are the body, and we have a goal, and that goal, corporately, should be the conversion of others. And we are to know God and make him known. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So share your faith. Find somebody to talk to about it. When you are, oh boy, if, you are, if you've got friends, and almost every one of you do, this should be one of the things that comes up. It should be, even if, I'm not opposed to cold contact evangelism. Hey, share the gospel with your waitress, with your, with your cashier, with whoever you come in contact. Any seed you can sow, that's great. But if you've got a circle of friends that you just enjoy spending time with because you grew up together, you've gotten to know each other on the job, and Jesus never comes up in the conversation, then you're letting them dictate too much of what's important to you and to your friendship. Or Jesus simply isn't as important to you as he ought to be. Because you know what? As we grow closer to people, we share the things that are important. Had a conversation with a young man years ago in youth group who was... Uh, 
in a dating relationship with a girl who seemed really nice. She was intelligent. She was smart. She was pretty. Uh, and and they, they began to spend more and more time together. But he was, he was a humble young man. And he came to me and says, you know, so what do you think about this girl? I'm thinking about maybe uh, taking it to the next level, whatever. I said, well, tell me about the time you spend together. Uh, you know, wanted to know if she was a believer. Well, yeah, she's a believer. Uh, what do you guys do? Well, we go out to eat, go to movies. He, was, he wasn't. They weren't, you know, sexually involved. Uh, well, do you, ever, uh, do you ever read the Bible together? No. That's all right. You know, that's, that's not a deal breaker. You know, at some point, maybe it ought, since, uh, since I'm assuming, as two believers, you're both reading the Bible, maybe it ought to be something you can share. Uh, what about, uh, do you ever pray together? No. Okay, do you talk about the things of God at all? No. When you go out to dinner, do you pray over the meal together? No, do you think we should? Yeah, I think you should. Again, not because God's going to strike you down if you don't. But where I began to steer the conversation is, this is somebody you're very, very interested in. And you both claim that Jesus Christ is the center of your lives. And yet, he's the one thing you're not talking about. Isn't that odd? What do two fishermen talk about when they get together? I mean, if you're passionate about fish, if you're passionate about fishing and you've got a good friend who claims also to be passionate about fishing, do you think you'll ever talk about fishing with that person? Yeah, in some, in some cases you won't talk about anything else. Sports fans, same way. Not only that, if you're passionate about it, you can't wait to talk about it with somebody who's not passionate about it. I like you. You know what we ought to do together? Go fishing. I want you to like it as much as I like it so we can do it together. But for two people who claim to be fishermen and never talk about fishing, that's, that's kind of suspicious. Are you really a fisherman? Now we're talking about something that's the center of your life if you're really a believer, and you're not going to talk about it with somebody who's important to you? Share your faith. Look for those opportunities. Learn to wreck. You know what? That's a prayer God loves to answer. God, give me an opportunity. Divine appointments. Bring me across a path of somebody who needs to, to hear you and give me words to speak. And then it's a matter of recognizing those opportunities because they will come. You would be surprised how open people are to the gospel. We are timid, I think, sometimes because we think we've, we've got the world. You read the polls and we see how opposed everybody is to hearing the gospel, how opposed they are to church and spirituality. You would not, if you haven't tried it, you would not believe how open people are to being prayed for. When I went back, when I was working at Sam's years ago, and I went through a, uh, re and I was here at the church too. This was during, my, I, was, I think at the time I was working one night a week. I would go in and, and work uh, receiving overnights. And, uh, but I was out for a month and a half, two months with a very, very painful, debilitating episode of, of sciatica, which you'll hear me talk about from time to time. But it was bad. I really was hurting. Hard, uh, there, were, there were days where I couldn't walk, days I couldn't get up, no, find no comfort. But when I finally went back to work, there was a guy who I knew who he was. We weren't tight. He wasn't mean, but he was rough. You know what I mean? He was a coarse individual. And, and, uh, and because of, he worked in a different department, we, we would maybe bump into each other while I was going into the break room and he was coming out or whatever. But he, happened, he was driving his forklift back there. He said, man, I haven't seen you in a while. I said, no, I haven't been here a while. Where you been? Well, I've been off because I had this bad case of sciatica and could hardly walk. Oh, yeah? You better now? I said, yes, yes, I'm better. He goes, what'd you do? How'd you get better? 
Well, I, and I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't say, praise God, here's an opportunity to preach the gospel to this guy. But the only true answer was God had healed me. He had. I'll tell you that whole story sometime. But I just looked at him, I just kind of like, you know, I don't know what you're going to think about this, but I'm here, I'm back at work because God healed me. He stopped, he goes, I believe you. I've heard about that happening to people. And starts talking to me about how he'd been watching John Hagee and watching these other TV preachers, and I'm like, you got Sometimes that's, one statement like that is all you got to do to flush them out. They are more eager to hear it than you think they are. And you know what another good thing is? And speaking of sharing the gospel and, and sharing your faith, invite them to church. Statistics continue to bear out that there, the, I don't know what the, I'll have to look it up because I didn't plan on sharing this, but there, there's a significant number of people who say they would go to church if invited. So invite them. All right, shame on us if they're only here because we haven't asked them to come. Uh, number eight, we're almost, we're getting there, right? You still with me? Okay, number eight, be nice. Be, Christians ought to be nice people. We shouldn't be scary, we shouldn't be mean. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be saying things and wearing things and acting ways and looking ways as an expression of our freedom, if it's going to scare people or offend people, be nice. Do unto others. <laughs> if you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. Do good unto all men, especially of the household of faith. Be nice to one another. Romans 12, 9. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the things in the sight of all men, for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We can afford to be nice, even to people we think deserve something else, and trust God to take care of it. All right? I mean, there's probably something twisted if we just say, I'm going to be nice to you because I want to see God take vengeance on you. But, and yet at the same time, God will not let the unjust go unpunished. Okay? Number nine. Read your Bible. Here we go again. Have I preached yet without saying something about this? 1 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's, if you, if you didn't have motivation to read your Bible, that's the best scriptural motivation right there. It's profitable for all of those things. You cannot be a mature, effective Christian without reading the word of God. You just can't. Sorry, 2 Timothy. 
2 Timothy 3.16. And we've said so much about that the last few times I've preached. We'll let that go because we're going to hit that hard again soon. Number 10. Anybody want to guess what number 10 is? I think I heard it. Pray. Pray. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4. First Philippians. <laughs> Philippians 4, beginning of verse 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And here we are, we're a church that's big on confession, and that means as individuals we ought to be big on confession. And how many of you, as an individual big on confession, have ever, in a time of maybe turmoil, trouble, tribulation, latched on to something you remembered hearing and saying, in Jesus' name I have peace. I claim the peace that passes all understanding. The peace that passes understanding, will, it will guard my hearts and mind. Father, I just claim that peace. That's good. But you know what? If... We go before God with everything, prayer and supplication, make our requests known to God. If we are in the habit of doing that, the result is the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. That's not something we should have to claim specifically. That's what happens when we have a lifestyle of prayer, when we pray about everything. And again, it is, uh, you know, I talk about... Uh, Finding a time to read your Bible, a devotional time. It really is. Uh, and I think, I know it's, it's not something maybe everybody could do, depending on the kind of work you do. Maybe your schedule isn't regular. But if you do, if, you're, if your work schedule, your school schedule, or whatever is more or less predictable, it is a good idea to schedule that time. To know that at least, on, and, and you know, you can, you can flow. God, you know, God is not going to be mad. If something comes up and you have to do your devotional at a different time, it's just it's a good it's a good planning tool to say this is the time I have set aside. Uh, if you are a, I, I'm I'm a morning person. I haven't always been a morning person, but I have for about the last I don't know ten or fifteen years. That's when I am at my most alert, my most productive. Is from about five to ten in the morning. That's when I'm going to get the most reading done, the most writing done. And so I'll work my devotion in in those early hours. That's when I schedule it. And it's perfect because nobody else in the house is awake. It's quiet. If you're a night owl, but you read, you know, early in the morning I will rise up and seek thee. Therefore, I'm going to set my alarm for 5:30, and you get up, or that alarm goes off, and you're just, Ugh. you know, just. Everything hurts, and you just, and then you're going to sit down and open that Bible. It's going to seem like a drudgery. You know, set some time aside during, you know, what, when are you most alert? When are you most relaxed and receptive? Well, when I'm watching TV. All right, shut that TV off and spend a half hour of that time reading your Bible and praying. But these are things that you, I, I think it's proper to have a time that is set aside for reading your Bible and for praying having this daily conversation with God. But we don't limit our prayer time to that devotional moment. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Well, what's that mean? I gotta, I, I've got to inhale every now and then. I've got to eat. I've got to work. I've got to sleep. What's it mean? It just means never 
whatever is troubling you, whatever you face, make everything that comes a matter of prayer. Let there be a constant sort of, even I hate that this is going to sound kind of like a crass term, a background conversation with God should always be going on while we're talking to other people, while we're doing other things. Just a constant thank you, God. You know, it's, it's and boy, I've, got, I've got a ways to go in this area. I really do. Uh, I'm a mess. You know, sometimes I don't even know what I'm doing here. There, there's so, so many things I still am trying to figure out. But every now, but, but there's some, every now and then, uh, God just, I, I think, comforts me and says, you know what? He reminds me. You've, you've, come, you've come a long ways in this area. Uh, and there'll be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be 50 this summer. Uh, so, you know, my life is approaching the halfway point, not there yet. Uh, but with the age and with the weight has come aches and pains that will hit me from time to time. Wake up with a sore joint or, you know, crick in the neck. Or sometimes you're just walking along and something's just like, oh, boy, you pull a muscle, something just hurts. And you know what? My, 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 my reaction is always, always, my first response is not, have I got any Advil? It's not, should I see a doctor? It's, and it's not even, somebody needs to pray for me. My, f- the first, my first response to sickness and pain is, thank you, God, for healing me. That's a prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. You know what? When, when, you're, when, you're, when you're exercising in the morning or the afternoon, when you're taking a shower, take 30 seconds of that time to speak God's word over you. And that's a prayer. Thank you, God, that as I go about my day, I am protected. I thank you that your promise of protection applies to my family and that we are walking in your favor today. I thank you, Father, that the Mills family is healed from head to toe, front to back, inside and out, that every organ and every gland and every muscle and every bone and every blood vessel, joint, ligament, tendon, nerve, cell, and tissue flows with the health of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And thank you that you meet all of our needs abundantly according to your riches and glory in Jesus' name. That's not a bad way to start your day. Except if your name isn't Millis. <laughs> Plug your name in there, all right? And again, everything that comes across your desk, across your plate throughout the day, just give it to God. Thank you, God, the solution's here. Thank you, I have the mind of Christ. I have the wisdom to solve this problem. Thank you, Father, that the conversation that just took place is an opportunity to speak into somebody's life. Not a constant, you know, you don't need to spend chunks, hour-long chunks a day doing this, but just be having, having this constant conversation with God. Amen? Praise the worship team. Come on up here. That's 10, right? Did we do 10? We'll do another 10 next time. <laughs> uh, we'll do something else next time. But stand up. We're going to sing a song and go eat here in a little bit. But before that, say this and mean it. In Jesus' name, name, I am going to do do all ten things on that list. (laughs) Amen. Amen. That's a good confession. Was there anything on there that's hard? Was there anything on there that's confusing? And I know it's ten things, but it's, it's not like things that you need to check off. These are 10 things that ought to be uh, identifiers. We ought to be able to point, these are some things that indicate that I am a Christian. I do these things not to become a Christian. I do these things because I am a Christian. 
the only people that doesn't apply to in this room, and I don't know if it applies to anybody in this room, but it only applies to people who are not Christians.